0: something at a destination which you cannot identify, right? So if if young people start switching their goals from, I want a Lamborghini to, I want to be the number one chef in L.A.
1: Welcome back to Young Smart Money with me, your host, Apple Crater. Today, we have Pejman Gadimi on the show. He is absolutely doing massive things online. He runs three multiple six- and seven-figure companies, including Secret Entourage, Exotic Car Hacks, and Watch Trading Academy, okay? These are his three huge companies, and we're going to focus the majority of this episode talking first about how he got started and coming from a place where entrepreneurship was not necessarily his first choice and his first route that he decided to go down, but then how he was able to build up these multiple businesses and create this life that he is living now which if you check out his instagram i create millionaires you can see what kind of life he is actually living now we also focus a lot on the watch trading aspect of things okay he has that again like i said watch trading academy so if you're interested in in getting started with a business which he he really details how you're able to start doing this um with not very much money to start with at all and you see some really significant returns, okay? I mean, this guy was telling me about um, some of the trades that he's doing, in, and it's it's significant money, okay? Especially if you're just starting out, like watch trading. Again, we had Christian Zerone on the show um, a few weeks back now where he talked about vintage watches and how he was able to build a multiple seven-figure business um, at the age of 23 through vintage watches. This is a little bit of a different strategy that PJ promotes in this podcast. But regardless, it is a very phenomenal way to get started if you were just looking to get started with some initial capital and um, start investing into some rare timepieces. But regardless, we're going to hop right into the episode. PJ has a ton of value to provide you guys with. So without further ado, we're going to turn the mic over to him. So again, whether you're walking the dog, whatever you are doing on this wonderful day when you were listening to Young Smart Money, I want you to sit back, relax, plug in, and enjoy this episode. All right, PJ, welcome to Young Smart Money. How are you doing today? Good. What's going on, buddy? Not too much, not too much. Having a wonderful, wonderful day over here in uh, Madison, Wisconsin. Um, I'm super stoked to have you on the show today. And our listeners, they heard a little bit about you in the intro, but for those of them that aren't familiar with you and what you're up to right now, could you give us a quick like, 60-second intro as to where you're at right now?
0: Sure. So what I do now is uh, obviously teach a lot of people. So you may have seen me all over YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and my three basic Uh, Well-known companies out there are Secret Entourage, Exotic Car Hacks, and Watch Conspiracy, and I'm also the best-selling author behind the famous book Third Circle Theory. So I've done a thousand things, but those are the more recent things that people may probably know me from.
1: Awesome. And I'm super stoked to dive into all those, especially the watch business that you're working on, because a lot of our listeners are younger. And I think that might be a great fit for a lot of them. But before we do that, I sort of want to work back and hear your story. So fill us in, maybe start at like middle school, high school years. Were you somebody who was very into sports? Were you starting your own side hustles? Were you taking school very seriously? What was that looking for you? What was that I was actually
0: the complete opposite that most people would never have imagined. Really? Uh, so, yeah, so I grew up in in France after escaping Iran's revolution. Uh, and then in France, it was really uh, just more of a trying to learn the language and fit in. And then I moved to L.A. and from L.A. ended up in D.C. where I started most of my kind of business life. Right. But prior to that, I was very quiet. I didn't have any ideas what I wanted. I didn't excel in school. I sucked at all, just about every class I ever went to. Uh, I couldn't keep focus on any teacher, no matter what they thought. It just, it just didn't flow for me. You know, it didn't matter. It just seemed like even then, and this was way before you guys now, which you're in information overload, but even for me then, it was very much like kind of unrelated knowledge. You know, it was just not relevant to anything I, I wanted to know about. So I just really kind of got by a lot of C's and D's and kind of barely uh, just made ends meet in that way. And then I grew up from a very, very poor family. So kind of as I kept going, uh, I had a lot weighing on my shoulder not to mess up, you know, I was always afraid to not get in trouble, not do anything. So I spent most of my early, uh, I would say high school days, even just going to school, coming back, taking chores and doing whatever I had to, to try to make as much money as I could, because I didn't have a green card and I had no opportunity to work. So very young age, just focused on doing my thing and really barely any friends, just two friends my whole life kind of thing. You know, no, never went to prom, never went to any of those activities, never played sports, never got involved anywhere. So just very reserved, very into myself, you know, until I got a, a lot older, until I got about like, when I turned 23, my entire life changed, you know?
1: Okay, talk to us about that.
0: So I was, uh, I, I started working at 14 and by 18, I was the director of a, of a company that was selling remodeling.
1: When did so, you get a card? I'm sorry? When did you get your green card?
0: I got my green card about when I was about 17. Okay. So I started working legally. They, I figured out a trick to getting them to hire me, not knowing that I didn't have a green card. <laughs> and I wrote that way three years before they kind of figured it out. And then we're like, hey, show me. And I was like, well, I have it now. So it didn't matter. <laughs> you know, at that point, I was like, well, there you go. And so I did that till I was 18. And then at 18, I became a bank manager, which was like crazy because no degree, no nothing. And most people are like, you need to be like 30 and you know, don't like have a master's, et cetera. So, you know, I got that and that was a big achievement in my life. And I really didn't take it for granted a lot of times, you know, work for me was always a a privilege, never a right. So it was always like, you go to work, you do your best. You never question like, Oh, well I'm, I deserve more. I'm entitled to more. I should Mm -hmm. be in a higher position. My boss is an idiot. You know, all the things that I guess young people today deal with (laughs) to me was more like, Hey, some guy gave me a chance to earn money. So today I'm going to go there and I'm going to do my best to earn that money. And so I did really well and every six months I kept getting promoted until at 23 I became an executive VP, the youngest one in the United States for a bank. And then, which was pretty good, you know, again, like uh, that got to my head a little bit because I was making really good money. I was 23 with, you know, a 911 Turbo and a Lamborghini and, you know, started working out and then my entire life kind of started changing from being kind of an introvert, very reserved and everything to kind of being like social butterfly of the year, you know, like just out there doing whatever it was. So I did that. And unfortunately, at about 25, uh, I was met with the reality that there's no loyalty in corporate America. While I had bought and drank the Kool-Aid for a long time, you know, like buying into this was my life. And let me tell you something. One of the things I tell a lot of young people today, because nobody likes jobs, right? Everybody hates jobs. Everybody's like, oh, my God, I don't work building someone else's dream you're never really building someone else's dream. Even when you work for other people, you're really not because you're going to work getting paid, right? Like, so you're building your own dream. You're just using someone else to facilitate your dream and you're building it at a fraction of time because you lack the skills and knowledge to do it on your own. And so a lot of people who hate jobs, I usually tell them like, don't hate jobs, jobs are great. If I didn't have all my jobs growing up, I wouldn't have been in a position to do all the things I did in business. So it made sense to do that, you know? And so one of the things I recommend people is always never, never look at jobs as negative things. Just look at them as a bridge to getting from where you are to where you need to be and really devote yourself to the job you get because someone is trusting you to come work there and they're paying you for that. And you owe to them since you accepted the pay to at least deliver on what your promise was to begin with. So doing a good job at a job does not mean you're a sellout. And a lot of young people, I think, feel that way. They they go, you need to start your own business and you need to do that. And it's not always true. So... You know, doing that, I realized at 25 that unfortunately all my years at first I felt like were wasted and, you know, I had been fired and I couldn't get another job elsewhere. And so I realized that really they hadn't just fired me or taken everything away from me. They had just taken my title away. So they couldn't take all the years of experience and everything else. And so I started my own investment bank uh, at 25, which – called VIP motoring. It was an investment bank in alternative assets. It was the first in the United States to allow people to invest in cars, watches, and art. So I did that at 25. Did really well for a couple of years, uh, about probably about six years before I decided that I loved what I was doing. Uh, I loved the actual business. I was making a lot of money that grew to an $80 million a year company, which was a big deal. And it was was my first real shot at making big money, making me no longer be like kind of a A worker you know and kind of put myself personally in the seven figures so doing all that like really gave me a new perspective on life until one day I kind of woke up and I realized that my life had to mean more than just be about making a lot of money it had to be about impact and so I started kind of a self-discovery journey for about seven years working on just various ways to teach people a lot of uh, a lot of different things that I had learned along the way
1: Awesome. So with that investment bank that you started, what was the draw to you towards uh, these these collectible items such as cars, watches, art? Like why did you choose to go down that route?
0: So that's a really good question. Part of it was because I had a passion for it, right? I loved cars, I loved watches, and I understood the financial model behind it. Okay. Having also been at a bank and I've been done really well for a couple of years on the side in real estate. I understood how asset allocation worked really well, So, and I understood how lending worked. So I took a lot of my own knowledge that I had over the years and got really creative with kind of understanding uh, how these other industries work that I didn't have the knowledge in. So I brought banking to an industry that really didn't have any relevance to banking. And then I started uh, leveraging time because we were right about the beginning of a recession, you know, the first recession in 2007. So that was really the beginning of when my business started acquiring a lot of assets that are distressed. And so I didn't need to know all the cars or all the watches or all the art. All I needed to know is that during recessions, distressed assets are selling pennies on the dollar. And that at some point value would come back, right? Because these are long-term assets, not like beanie babies, you know, so Mm -hmm. they don't die with the times. So I thought to myself and I was like, well, it's an opportunity to buy stuff and hold it. Well, I did that. And unfortunately I realized that there was no cash flow. So meaning just buying and holding assets doesn't make you money. Until you sell the assets, right? And selling them during a the recession also doesn't make you money because you're making very little money. So that's when I created an investment model to allow people to come in and invest in these things while I held them because I understood kind of the beginning and exit of each of these things, but they didn't. And remember, I had a lot of clients from my banking days that also didn't want to be in banks during that time. A lot of people were taking their money out and looking for alternative ways outside of stocks, real estate, because everything was kind of crumbling down, you know? And so, you know, giving them an opportunity to find something new while guaranteeing their money, because I was already pretty well off myself at that time. I mean, my banking job, I had put a lot of money aside. I was by no means poor when I was fired, if that makes sense. You know, I wasn't like wealthy, but I wasn't poor in the sense where I was needing money for for work or anything. So putting all my money into my, my own assets and showing people I was using this model myself gave them more confidence. People came on board and we continued this. Uh, for a couple of years first we with just five people, you know It was five big shot investors that they came on board and moved their money from the bank over to me But over time then we became 40 50 investors, you know, and that was a, a better model And it became a brokerage firm more than just an investment firm. So people were like, well, listen I'll invest in these cars, but I also want my own car. So we started facilitating, you know, giving people getting people cars watches art and everything in between and also becoming their kind of concierge service. So You know, our business took multiple forms and and multiple shapes, but really watches, it's funny because you asked about watches earlier, watches were the biggest part of our revenue, which Mm -hmm. was why watches became such an obsession past that for me. When I started teaching about various alternative assets, I started really focusing in on cars and watches, but watches really as the primary way for people to make money.
1: That's very interesting. And I'm, I'm always fascinated by watches because actually, uh, probably about 20 or 30 episodes ago, we had Christian Zerone on the show who started his own um, vintage watch company called Theo and Harris. And he talked a lot about the vintage watch business. So I'm really excited to, to dive deeper with that um, with you as well. Talk to us now about that journey that you went on that that seven year journey that you decided to go on after you had um, sort of decided that something needed to change in your life.
0: Yeah, so, you know, I was really happy. I was really content monetarily. I had a lot of money. I was comfortable. And I was that guy that in Washington, D.C. was rolling up to the club. Everybody admired with the cars and stuff. And as a young person, that goes to your head over time. You know, you're like, well, I must matter so much because I'm here and everybody's like praising me for something. But one day I started realizing that my mom had gone through a lot of struggles as a single mother, escaping multiple countries. I had gone through a lot of shit that wasn't typically what the average person goes through, right? So I started wondering... Was all of that for nothing? Was it just so I can get here make some money and be happy? You know, was that kind of the purpose of the game? Was that, was that the idea? And I started realizing that perhaps the idea was more than that, but I couldn't really pan out how. You know, I think all of us inside know or internally feel like, are we destined for greater? Are we destined for better? Should we do bigger, better things? Should we go for bigger goals? Is our journey to become the next Elon Musk or to become the next Bezos, you know, or are we going to become the next Mother Teresa or whatever it is? And reality is at that time in my life, I really started kind of connecting the dots as to what had made me really successful today. And one of the things that resonated with me was that the impact that I had made or I'd, the largest impact I had had in my entire journey from beginning to end was always around those I had been teaching things to, regardless that I was teaching in business, teaching uh, in my own companies, you know, how to be leaders or teaching in banking, how to be managers that work for me and so on and so forth. And I realized that this teaching thing was really where my competitive advantage was as a person, not as a business. I was just a really good teacher. And so I started really looking at how do I create a vehicle that allows my teaching to get to people? You know, meaning like how do I put my words into a method that allows people to actually get uh, impacted by them? And so I wasn't a very tech savvy guy. I wasn't a very uh, it guy I didn't understand social networking that well or anything and remember this was a time where all of this stuff wasn't around right instagram had just started it was not what it is today and was facebook ad networks weren't there or anything so a lot of what i was doing then was just kind of like how do i get this message out to people and so reality is i started nothing more than a harmless blog just to talk about success and and talk about business and how people with lamborghinis afford them what do they do you know like for a living and so on and so forth and I came to the realization that there was a there was a, a group of people that really enjoyed that. They enjoyed reading about it. They enjoyed being part of it. Uh, and so I started writing more and more and more. And next thing you know, you know, I started writing uh, again more books. You know, more uh, what do you call it? Um, more. I started writing more books, more articles, more this, more that. And I started realizing that you know all of these things are happening, and I'm now part of it. You know, it's part of what I do. It's like sharing the journey with people is part of what I am now. And so I started, the more I was doing it, the more I would enjoy getting the feedback from people that it was impacting them. And so the more I continued it, uh, I wrote, I had never read a book in my life. I hated reading. And that was the funny thing. I hate reading. Uh, And yet I, I wrote, I, I was on my like seventh book, you know, and they weren't selling very well, but I was writing them because I just couldn't stop writing. And eventually on my 10th book, I wrote Third Circle Theory, which uh, became such a large and uh, famous book across the globe that it gave birth back to my other uh, blog, which was Secret Entourage at the time. So kind of, you know, it brought a lot of the credibility back because people were like, oh, that book resonated with me. It was crazy. And so, you know, I started realizing that, you know, it just comes down to just putting out the effort more and more and just focusing on actually building an infrastructure around what I'm doing, because I realized that. You know, a lot of people confuse entrepreneurship with business, right? In my life, I've owned a lot of businesses. Like, I've owned a lot of businesses that have done very well. I've owned businesses that have not done so well. But one of the things about entrepreneurship is that entrepreneurship is an extension of a person. You know, it's the entrepreneur that creates the social impact and change. The business is nothing more than the vehicle that takes that change to people. So, you know, if you think about the fine line between entrepreneurship and business, like owning, for example, a restaurant doesn't make you an entrepreneur. Being self-employed doesn't make you an entrepreneur. But when you are an entrepreneur, you leverage perhaps even a restaurant or being self-employed to drive your message forward and the social change forward. So someone like Elon Musk leverages Tesla to get people to understand how to be more responsible towards climate, you know, as one uh, of his venues. So what I'm saying is the business in itself isn't entrepreneurial as much as the person is just leveraging the business to bring forward the change. So For me, you know, all of these platforms and everything was just the way for me to bring forward to people education they had not seen before, uh, reach they had not had before, and ultimately give them a glimpse into the possibilities they've never seen before. And so I leveraged online platforms to do that, like Seeker Entourage, now Exotic Car Hacks, and Watch Conspiracy, with many more launching in these upcoming years, uh, to help kind of bring this global, tribal knowledge to people. For more real-world-based education that is relevant, something I never had growing up.
1: Oh, that's huge! And I think something you said really there that really caught my caught my attention is the difference between like a business and an entrepreneur. And that's something that I have never really thought that much about before and how a business is really just a tool that an entrepreneur leverages in order to achieve their goals. So that's something that I think our listeners should really um, sit with and think about because I think a lot of times, like you said, those ideas get conflated and people get confused and think that if you have a business or if you are self-employed, that is what makes you an entrepreneur. But in reality, it's like it's the way you think about things. It's the way that you set your goals. It's the way that you take action every single day. Um, so talk to us a little bit about like, that mindset shift that you had. Like, was that something that, that you were always thinking about? Did you, was there a time where you realized that like, being an entrepreneur wasn't just about owning businesses? You, you know, one thing that happened in my life early on that I think
0: everybody can take uh, benefit from understanding is that at some point in my life, I was about 27 years old, I decided to become very self-honest with myself. And I think that's something a lot of people don't have. Uh, what I mean by that is I decided to align my reality to the reality that others had of me, not in a glorified manner, but in a real sense, you know? And so I think since that day, my life just got better because it wasn't so much focused on facade, but it was more focused on impact. And what I mean by that is that a lot of us don't understand definitions and yet we use them very openly. I'll give you an example. So we all as individuals kind of understand the idea that every millionaire has Uh, like seven sources of income, you know, like it's kind of a general saying, right? And and a definition like that is a very dangerous definition if it's not put into context. Because if we think of that, right, as someone who is not a millionaire, for example, you might say, well, wait a minute, I'm thinking about that. That means I need to establish seven businesses for myself in order to get there, right? But you see, the definition is so broad that without context, anyone would interpret it as such. But what the definition was really meant to say is that every millionaire at the stage of being a millionaire has developed seven sources of income. It does not mean that all millionaires have had seven sources of income to get there. Actually, the majority, over 90% of people who have become millionaires, have become millionaires out of one thing. And that one thing, as a result of creating so much money, has been diversified into seven, 10, 15, 20 different sources of investments, revenue, businesses, and so on and so forth. But it is never the byproduct of, you know, like seven things have to happen simultaneously. But these definitions pollute our social media. And they pollute it in a way that it it, it crumbles these ideas into people's heads that they don't understand. Like like most people would say, well, every millionaire reads five books a month. Okay, well, that's completely untrue. Right? What I'm saying is I have never even read a full book in my life. So, you know, what does it define me? So now I'm a I'm a liar because i never read a book. You see what I mean? So what I'm saying is that we define things in a way that we justify why we take our actions instead of just coming back to the reality of it. See, when I was poor, I realized that if I was poor and I was making no money, then this is where reality would come in. I would say, okay, if I earn $5 cleaning cars, it's better than earning $0. This is a reality statement, right? Versus an entitled statement where definitions get lost would be, well, the ongoing rate for an employee is $12 an hour. So if I don't make $12 an hour, then someone isn't really appreciating my worth. That is a facade statement, which means that the, what's more important is for you to, be, to feel good about making money rather than the essence of making money. Because that guy may look for a job for 12 days and I might in those 12 days have made $1,000 in my pocket, right? Because I wasn't afraid of the work or the definition, instead I was just doing it. And I think that's one of the biggest things that plagues uh, people very early on is they, they look for the definitions that define who they are so that they can fit in an ecosystem of society that accepts them for who they are. You know? And I think that the big problem from that is that they're more worried about the facade or the definitions being accepted rather than they're, they're really pleasing to make sure they create impact in their own life first before in the life of others. So I would say that I think the best thing you can take back from my journey in terms of what was that transformation that made place is I stopped defining life from the eyes and the definition of others. And I started looking at the hard facts that no one wants to look at. When I was poor, I was poor. There was, no, there was no justifying that I was better off because I had a nice pair of shoes. If I didn't have $10,000 in my bank account, I was below poor. If I didn't have $100,000 in my bank account, I was broke. And if I didn't have a million dollars in my bank account, I was middle class. So what I'm saying is instead of saying, well, I'm the better end of the middle class because I have a million dollars in my bank account, I never skewed that reality, which kept me going. You know, it was one of the main drivers that made me realize how insignificant I was, despite what others thought of me, that I needed more impact. And as a result, ended up even wealthier than I ever imagined that would have.
1: Okay, so talk to, talk to like the 18, 19, 20-year-old listener here right now that has, has grown up in this ecosystem of social media and hearing all of these facade statements over and over again. What would you tell that person to help themselves distance themselves from all of these thoughts that are, that are being sent into their mind that aren't based in reality at all? Like, How can somebody distance themselves from that and get back to reality and get back to getting some perspective on their life and where they're really at?
0: you just pretty much stack dollars that's it that's what it, you, you have to kind of make you, you have to make a point as to the destinations you want in life and i think that these are the things young people don't do today so most young people i meet don't say, don't have destinations and what i mean by that is they don't have they don't even have goals they think they have goals they'll say things like i want to get rich they'll say things like i want to have a lamborghini i want to have a freedom of time i want to spend time with my family. these aren't goals these are rewards these are the rewards you get once you reach a goal. But if there's no goal, it's almost like saying like I'm going to get on a ship and I'm going to sail it in the ocean and my destination is an island with a ton of women on it. And you're like, "Okay, that's great. What where is that?" And you're like, "Well, I don't know, but I'm going to find it." So you blindly sail the ocean in hopes of finding something at a destination which you cannot identify, right? So if, if, if young people start switching their goals from I want a Lamborghini to I want to f- be the number one chef in L.A., I want to be the number one, uh, let's say, franchise business owner in Canada, like whatever those goals are, once they become tangible and real, a path starts setting up. You already know where you're going. So now your body starts coming up with how do I get there? What are the things I do to get there? And what connects that for people are usually skills. So often people can't define destinations because they don't believe those destinations to be possible. Secondly, they can't take a step towards that destination because they don't have any of the skills necessary to actually start walking towards that destination. So if you say, listen, I want to own the number one website on money management in the country. You're like, great. So, but I'm not a coder. I'm not a designer. I don't know how to write. So they don't actually start working on how can I acquire these skills? So everybody, the, the problem is that once, even those set destinations, everybody wants to start at the zero starting line. Everybody wants to be like, I'm ready to go. What do I do next? But reality is my entire journey is a good example of this. It doesn't start at zero to a hundred. It starts at negative 10,000. And you have part of that journey, maybe seven, 10, 15 years is just getting to the starting line, not even getting to the end line. Fuck, the starting line, the zero line. And some of us are born poor. You know, I was born in a third world country. I was born poor. I was born without two parents. You know, like I had all of these things that were technically handicaps per se. And yet still, it took me 10 years only to get to the zero starting line. And then another 10 years to get to the basic growth line. And then another seven years to multiply that growth to a level that's like, hey, now let's look at this guy on Instagram and be like, oh, look at all these cars, look at all this house. Oh my God, like I want to be like him. And in reality is you're not seeing not even the 10 years it took me to get there. You're not seeing the 10 years before that. It took me to get to a place where I just got started. And so as a result, if we talk about that, that's just not sexy. So nobody wants to talk about it. Nobody wants to tell you, listen, if you take my program here, you're not going to learn e-commerce and how to make $10,000 a month. Instead, you're going to take six years of your life and learn how to become a better human. And and you know what happens? Nobody wants to buy that product. Nobody cares about that because people can't relate that. Right? Like we're such, that's the number one sign you're going to be unsuccessful is that you buy a product simply on the basis that what can I get out of this in 30 days?
1: Hmm. That's the truth. And that's how I see so many people around me operating. Like if you look at any of the Facebook ads out there, any of the YouTube ads out there, like that is what people are pitching. And that is what is performing because people are looking for instant gratification, like young people, especially.
0: You're right. It's performing. And so, you know, it's the machine that keeps feeding itself the bad stuff, right? It's like, look, I can, I, I did a pattern on this where I did a whole course that was extremely powerful. On the, on the mind and how to change it and literally was like, I promise nothing. I said, nothing about business. I said nothing about having success. I said, this has been proven with thousands of testimonials that it will change your life and you'll find your way. And guess what, nothing. You know, I even made it cheap. I made it affordable. I said only 300 bucks, nobody bought it. Then I did the exact same pitch, except I said, you know, here are people that have made 10 15, $20,000 in their first year. Here's another guy that made five grand in his first month. I didn't even say what they were doing. And instantly at $1,000, everybody's buying it. So you start rethinking that unfortunately, you know, it's, it's the way society is, right? Like people have this need to believe they're gonna make it quickly. Now, here's the interesting part, because I have, a, I, throughout my life, I've had incredible people uh, surrounding me that have helped me become who I've become. And one of them said something to me that was really uh, shifting my own mindset in terms of like selling people the products. It is I complained because I said, I didn't want to put a Lamborghini on the cover of my book. And he said, why? And I said, because that's not what the book's about. It's about mindset, it's about the right thing. It's not about a car. And he says, put it on there anyways. And I said, I won't do it. I refuse to, like, I'm not gonna do it. And he goes to me, he goes, what good is a book no one's reading? And I said, that's a really good thought, right? Like Because if the if the book title or appeal isn't there, no one's gonna experience the journey anyways. You know, so, so at the end of the day, while I agree in the sense that it sucks to have to market to people in that way, because you would hope that humanity wakes up and sees the world for what it is. I mean, we live in a world where you expect things to happen in 30 seconds. We live in a world where facts don't even exist on, in the highest levels of government. We live in a world where nobody cares anymore about what's right, but only cares about what's right for them, right? So you live in that world, and if you want to change it, I think you need to realize that you're not going to change it by going against it, you're going to change it by adopting why people go with it, and then changing their minds from the inside out, right? Similar to you can't go into a religion, right? And be like, hey, you guys suck, this is wrong, you guys should join my religion, right? But you can become one of them to understand their ways, and then slowly convince those that disagree with certain principles to take on a new faith. So. Ultimately, the idea is change isn't created from the outside by force, it's created from the inside by influence, you know?
1: That's very interesting. That's very interesting. Well, I want to dive into to the watch section, mm-hmm. um, just because I think that our listeners can really relate to that, um, because a lot of our listeners are coming in, they might not have a, a bunch of money to get started investing in things like exotic cars, um, but I think a lot of them um, seem to have an interest in, in vintage watches and watches in general. So talk to us a little bit about what you're doing in the watch space right now.
0: So watches are assets, right? And a lot of people don't realize that. Not all watches, to be clear. Luxury watches and uh, exotic, expensive, rare timepieces can be an incredible investment opportunity. Even Kevin O'Leary on Shark Tank said that in the last four years, his best investments were watches. So to give you context, like a Rolex Batman went up 220% in the last six months. A Patek went up $50,000 in the last three months alone. So, you know, some, there are occurrences like that, just like stocks that have spikes in certain watches and models based on supply and demand. The beauty with watches though, is they're just, they they work to kind of continuously go up, not back down, which uh, historically watches have continuously gone up over a period of 10 years, never really kind of crashed down and been worth nothing. So it's a commodity that kind of has a very safe principle base, uh, which is very unlikely for an investment. So if you invest, for example, let's say $52,000 in a Patek or $8,000 in a Rolex, the core of the investment is safe. Even if the margin of profit for the jeweler, uh, you know, you lost some money. So let's say you buy an $8,000 Rolex, maybe 1500 bucks of that is the profit for the jeweler. But the 6,500 is the core cost of the watch, which isn't going anywhere. So if you allow time to play its game without actually like trading the watch, then over time, the baseline that is now sixty-five hundred will be eight, so the jeweler price will be ten. So you see, you just literally made up your money and you break even. Now, in the watch game, uh, we teach people how to buy these watches at the sixty-five hundred dollar range and really take over that jeweler margin of fifteen hundred to $2,000 uh, while protecting their principal investments. So it makes it a pretty cool gig for people who are at home, have access to a post office and a computer, because it doesn't take much to buy watches and it doesn't take much to trade them. It just takes good knowledge, uh, a strategic partner with the knowledge and the how to's in the industry. And then all it takes is just an ecosystem of kind of uh, having people to bounce, you know, models and everything as you're learning on, but otherwise it becomes a pretty systematic uh, effortless kind of game. I mean, we have students now that are like they started at 17 and by 18, they're not making 15 K a month, you know, which is, A big deal. And they knew nothing about watches before. And this is the the powerful thing. A lot of people think they're like, oh, well, these guys probably had spent 10 years loving watches and they just came in and started doing this. They knew nothing about watches before. And just by basically taking the course content and putting in the work, not to say that just taking a course is going to get you that money, but they put in the work, they did the networking, they did what they had to and part-time while they're in college, they're funding their way through college and their car and more. Which is, you know, interesting to me to see because it's good to see that impact being made, even though my life, they don't really want to revolve around teaching people how to make money. It's still obviously powerful to see a 17-year-old pay his way to college, you know,
1: doing that. Absolutely. So walk us through like the basic process for somebody who is looking to go out there and get invested and say their first watch. Like what are the steps that you need to take? What's the research aspect look like how would somebody get started from ground zero in investing into into rare time pieces
0: so so basically the concept of it is it's almost too simple which is scary right you find a watch online you use the strategies we teach you to make sure that you're buying from the right person uh you vet the person that's you're obviously buying from to make sure you're not being scammed which teach you that step by step in the course You then double check again, which we teach you how to determine that it's a fake or a real watch. So obviously you don't get taken for a ride again. So again, this is kind of the research phase. You know, you make sure that you're buying from the right person. You make sure you're not buying a fake watch. And then you simply uh, PayPal wire or use credit card to pay for a watch. And then you get the watch shipped to you within a day. Uh, And then you use the watch to then uh, list it on a couple of sites we give you. To give you an example, one of them would be eBay. Uh, you would list it on there and we give you a price chart so you know exactly what to list it for and how to calculate those things uh and then you post it for sale and then the same selling process happens meaning once you sell it you vet the person buying you make sure that their you know money or anything is, is received cleared and, and and good and then you ship the watch and the trade continues we have some students starting with as little as 700 dollars for watch We have other students that start with five, you know, and do two, three watches at a time. Um, The average person, I think, is like $1,200 their first watch. And the the best part about it is not how much money you make, because on a $1,200 investment, you might only make like two, 300 bucks. But you have to consider that like, that's like almost like 30% return in a couple of days. So when you actually start putting it in context to percentages owned, like I've been doing this for a long time, and I make anywhere from 15 to 20% every three to four days. So that's, I mean, as a banker, that's unheard of. You know, if you tell me that there's a stock making me 15% a year, I tell you that's phenomenal. So 15% rotating every three days is just nuts. I mean, a lot of people don't actually believe me until I show them, I'm like, here, and they're like, that's just, I I, I still can't believe it because that doesn't make sense. You have to have a trick or something. And reality is, the only trick is you get better and better with experience as moving watches faster. So the average first timer will take 20 days to flip a watch. Uh, The average expert will take 24 hours to flip a watch. So obviously you can flip a lot more and you can have a lot more money to flip as you get better at this, you know?
1: So what are some of the things you look for in a watch when you're like doing your research and figuring out like, is this like the watch that I want to buy? Like, do you look at price charts? Are there like ways for you to tell like how many of these watches are moving in a certain time period? Like what, what kind of stats can you look at with these things?
0: So yes and no. So you can use basic tools like for example, like eBay and take a look at how interested people are in an item that helps. You can also look at density of real estate, meaning how many of these pieces are for sale at any given time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and who is selling them, you know, like so that helps you learn a little bit about what expectations are in terms of how quickly they move uh, You can also check and you you end up becoming knowledgeable on industry news So it's very common that watch traders at first know nothing about watches But over time start getting their sources for like, oh, they just announced that Rolex cut back 20% of these models or that you know, if I go after this you lease not them, it's now a good buy, you know, so you, you have sources for education like that through time that you kind of learn to like or dislike. But really, I think the important thing on the research is the ecosystem of, uh, of people, of other traders. Part of the, the reason we've started our community was because we realized that just being a watch trader by yourself uh, is very difficult and risky because you don't have anybody to bounce off like, hey, I think this is a good price and I think this is a good deal, but I still am not 100% sure. And sometimes people still get surprised They'll post something in our community and be like, "I was about to pay five grand for this," and someone else says, "No, you should have paid like twenty five hundred for this." And they're like, "Wait, they make that much money on that watch, you know?" And it's like that watch is that way. And some of the watches only have five hundred dollars margins. So, you know, there's so many models that it's impossible to say this is exactly the model you go after. But there are better brands than others, and of course, we cover all those step by step.
1: Okay, so what are some of the biggest mistakes that you see people making when they try to get into the watch game? What are some of the biggest like, pitfalls that you see people um, going through?
0: Arrogance is the biggest thing in any type of investment. You know, it, it's either there's this spectrum of arrogance on one side and there's fear on the other. Either you're very afraid of making the investment and losing any type of money, so you're just never playing, you're always speculatively playing, uh, or you have too much arrogance in the game and just doing two good flips, you get lucky on two. And you get like this whole, like, I'm a god of flipping. People (laughs) say it wasn't going to happen for 30 days. I did it in two days, you know, like, and I made so much money on this. And they said I was an idiot for buying this. And so you get this whole, like, me against them kind of mentality. Uh, It's very common in the car and watch business that jewelers are not friendly towards each other. Automotive dealers are not either. And it's very, very common in the watch business that people who are Uh, trading for the first time, you know, go under the wing of a bigger trader, like somewhere because they do business with someone, and they instantly believe in the loyalty there, instead of understanding that that person's loyalty is only to the money. Mm. So a a lot of traders will jump into this, immediately allow their arrogance to drive their motion. And before you know it, they'll go all in doing multiple trades at once and following. And before you know it, their trust leads to some major loss that ends up being like, man, I can't get out of this watch. I'm stuck. And I have to assume a 5k loss. So all my profits are gone. And so I was saying this game, you know, those that are slow and steady do better than those that are, uh, you know, quick and careless.
1: Mm. That's the truth. That's the truth. And I mean, that's That's the truth in everything, right? Exactly. Exactly. Even in
0: stock trading or anything.
1: Like just having that patience and being able to see the long-term vision behind something rather than getting caught up in like short term profits. And like you said, the arrogance of thinking you're the best. all right so i'm also curious with with the watch game as far as that goes like what are some of the i don't know like just just basic things that people should be aware of when they're getting into this market maybe like i i I don't know like what are what are some like the ground level knowledge maybe it's like name brands that are like good. I mean, you said some brands are necessarily better than others. So like, what is, what are like the fundamentals that people should be aware of here?
0: I mean, the the more popular watch brand like a Rolex, Mm Patek AP, the smaller, the amount of money that can be made. Obviously Mm -hmm. the more current something is, the more people want it, the more demand, then the more supply is is entering the market for it. Uh, The other thing that's really important to understand is scams are everywhere. So you have to get good at not allowing your emotions to make the decisions of what to buy or not, but rather factual evidence and timely, you know, a lot of people, I guess in any investment game, uh, there's really two types of of winners and losers. They're the ones that are also, they're afraid of missing out on the good, right? They're like, if I don't pull the trigger, someone else will, and then I'll kick myself in the the face for not having bought this and made the money, and they did. And as a result, they forego kind of their training. You know, they're like, well, I learned to do my due diligence this way, do this and do that. And instead, I'm going to put all that out the window because I'm money hungry and I see this as an opportunity and this seems to be there. So that's usually problem one is the fear of missing out on the deal causes bad judgment. Uh, the other fear, too, is also like a big problem for traders is also that they don't uh, they, they're quick at judging a deal based on the dollar and they don't take the time to understand the game. So a lot of people, when you go into the game of of trading watches, you gotta have this mentality that's like, I'm not in here to flip a watch, I'm in here to become a watch trader. And there's a big difference between that because flipping a watch is being a gambler. Watch trading is being an investor. Those are two completely different things. Imagine if we turn this into stocks, it would be like one of your friends coming to you and saying, listen, I've identified all the patterns and everything in a stock. I believe it'll go up 15%. I'd like to invest $10,000, right? Versus your other friend coming to you and saying, do you have a good stock tip for me? I want to put some money somewhere. I need a tip. So they're not trying to understand the game. They're just trying to get a rich off of a gamble. Those are the guys that go to the roulette tables. So they're like, black or red. I'll just put 10 grand on red and we'll see what happens. So quick money isn't learning the trade right so even if you make you got to kind of make a decision going in do you want to wear a nice watch wear it and then get rid of it later and okay you made money or you broke even you're good or do you want to legitimately learn this trade spend a couple of hours a week learning it and then until you get good at it enough that you can not only wear a watch but also leverage other watches in your vault that you can constantly move uh for some kind of cash flow you know so Again, it's all specifically uh, down to your commitment to either the trade or the money. And if you commit to the trade, then you're going to do really good. If you commit to the money, then you typically may or may not do good. But like I said, it's usually a gamble.
1: Hmm. What are some of the best tips you can give our listeners to uh, not end up getting scammed? Because like you said, there's a lot of scams out there. A lot of people trying to um, take advantage of people. So how do you advise people to avoid that and, and to do their due diligence there?
0: So first thing is if this price is too good to be true, it is. That's just how the market works. There's thousands of watch traders all day, every day on all these platforms. Trust me, you're not the first to discover a price that's like astronomically good and nobody else pulled the trigger and you're going to save the world doing it. That never happens. Never one time in my 15 years doing this have I ever seen someone, you know, say, hey, I got this and it was just so low. The guy was an idiot. Didn't know what he had, you know, so never, never seen that happen. Uh, the other thing that's really important is always buy from the seller, if the seller if, if, buy the seller before you buy the watch, meaning if the seller doesn't have a reputation online is not known to do this or does not care about their reputation, then don't buy from that person, because in this game, reputation is everything. And if someone doesn't value it, that means they have nothing to lose by scamming. you. So, you know, I would say to people like, you know, reputation matters. So if you don't scam people, you'll continue to get a lot of business. But if you scam people, you'll never do business again. So typically people who are scam artists don't care for their reputation. So if you actually look online, get referrals or, from people that have done business with them and you can't really still find uh, a good enough trend of reputation, then just don't do the deal. You know? Again, don't be afraid of missing out, but that's the only deal you can make. There's thousands of niche models out there at all times being sold. So just because you don't make one deal doesn't mean you'll never make a deal. You know?
1: hmm. That's really important, and again, that fear of missing out is something that I see a lot of young people struggling with. They always want to get in on the next big trend, the next like drop shipping, the next yeah, and every single media. thing,
0: right? Doesn't matter what it is, it's just they want to be part of it, you know.
1: How how have you thought about that, and has that ever been something that you have struggled with, um, in in your various business ventures?
0: Have I struggled with?
1: Yeah, the fear of missing out.
0: Uh, I mean, I think in general, as a younger person, I was always afraid of missing out on trends. This has helped me when it comes to, uh, like business trends, because I've always worked faster as a result mm-hmm. of being afraid that the trend ends. Like, uh, give you an example, when Instagram started kind of growing at a alarmingly fast rate and nothing was moderated in terms of like reach or anything. And it was all organic, like the good days that maybe a lot of you guys weren't working in, but were enjoying, uh. You know, like I understood that it wasn't going to last forever. We had gone through this with Facebook, so we knew it was going to end. We knew that that model was going to end. So, you know, the fear of missing out made me work twice as fast to get as much as I could up front in that regard. But reality is from an investment standpoint, uh, I've, never, I've never been afraid to miss out. That's actually part of the reason why I've been very successful in investing, regardless of that it's in anything else. I'm always willing to lose the deal. And if you're willing to lose the deal, I would say investments are like, the person who cares the least makes the most. Mm. The person who cares the most makes the least. You know, so if you start getting emotional towards your investments, regardless that it's towards the money you're gonna make, towards the company you're investing, towards the car you're gonna buy, towards the watch you're gonna pick up, then you're gonna lose. Doesn't matter what it is. The moment you get rid of emotion, and you make everything about facts and about dollar in, dollar out, then the more robotic you become, but the more logical you become towards your investment and risk factor, and you limit your your losses and you enhance your gains. You know, it's a common strategy in all investing, not just trading
1: That's the truth. And yeah, I mean, like in any deal, like the person who needs it less is definitely going to come out of that feeling the best because like they're fine walking away from it. Like,
0: Same with a love relationship, right? Yep. The one that, that cares the least is the one that's going to gain the most out of relationship. And now it doesn't mean that you shouldn't care about your other, but it means that the more emotional you're towards something, the, the less likely you're going to be rational in the way to make it last and make it good during its time. Mm.
1: That's the truth. Now, one thing that I'm also really curious about with, with all of my guests is like how they establish what they're focusing on, because clearly you have a lot of different business ventures you're working on. How do you think about splitting up your time? How does that look for you um, between all the different businesses that you're currently working on? It's
0: funny because we talked about that earlier, right? Every millionaire has seven sources of income. Reality is I don't recommend anybody does anything more than one thing at a time. And I, and I, what I mean by that is you got to do things. I talk about this a lot in my book, Radius, uh, but the the idea is this. You can't start doing two things and dividing your time when you're not already doing something really well. So so in other words, if you build a business and it's scaling and you've given it your time and it's now on a model where you say, hey, listen, everything is automated. I'm not spending 30 hours a week not doing anything anymore, just supervising. That gives you time to start working on something else and create a second source of income. Usually it even makes more sense if you use my radius model and relate it to something of the sort of what you're already doing. So to leverage resources or customers from the same pile. The problem becomes that people become very two-sided. They start something and then halfway through when they see some success, they go, well, the way I'm going to find more success is if I add another five grand by doing this completely different thing. So I'm building this e-com business, but now I'm gonna start stock trading. Well, there's no correlation between e and stock trading. So what ends up happening is, doing one will not lead to the other doing better, and it will technically take you further away from the other one because you don't have the focus. Now, if however you're saying, I'm having great success in e I'm now gonna start a separate store about something different, maybe related to the same audience, but I'm gonna sell now, uh, kids' shoes, you know, and the other one of selling kids' toys. Now you have the ability, one will feed the other. If you generate a customer for one, it will feed the other. If you do really well in a strategy for one, it can be implemented for the other. So the, 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 the radius of its growth continues to be built on the same customers and, and the same resources. It's whenever people are, are choosing to doubt their longevity that they start, in, like, engaging in new businesses that are completely irrelevant to their first. Is when they find themselves most vulnerable because they're giving away their focus and they haven't yet scaled the business far enough for it to make sense.
1: Mm. Totally, completely agree with you on that. And like so many, so many people that message me are doing like, they're like, all right, I've got a Shopify business, I've got a social media marketing business, I've got an Amazon business. And they list off like 12 different things that they're doing. And I'm like, dude, you got to like figure it out, like pick something and get really good at it before you think about doing all these different things because you're not going to be able to do any of these things at a high level if you're just splitting your time across like a million different businesses. Yep, exactly. All right, PJ, I've got some questions that I'd like to ask all of my guests before we wrap up the show. Are you feeling ready for them? Let's go, man. Awesome. The first thing I want to know is what is something that you are genuinely excited about right now? What has you fired up and uh, excited for the future?
0: So I'm doing a Europe tour uh, in May. So I'm pretty excited about that because I haven't been to Europe yet. Uh, I've been to Europe, I was raised there, but I mean, I haven't been there from a business standpoint with uh, kind of a book tour. So I'm gonna do that in, uh, in May. So that's pretty exciting and pretty new to me.
1: Cool, that's super exciting. Do you have any habits that have served you particularly well? These could be in your business or just in your life in general?
0: Self-honesty, like I said, was the number one and most powerful habit I think you can have, like having a good sense of self rather than one inflicted by other. And then really the other habit is is being a man of my word more than anything else. If I say I'm going to do something by a certain time, either for somebody or for myself, I always deliver. I have never missed a deadline, no matter the situation that has come in between. If my car breaks down, I'll Uber, leave my car on the side of the road. Like you just, you never give circumstance an opportunity to win one over you.
1: Mm. That's huge. That's huge. And that's, got that's huge. I guarantee progress. you do that. That's half yeah. the
0: battle of your entire success. Run, you know?
1: Absolutely. I want to bounce back to uh, self-honesty for a second. Do you have any like tips, strategies, anything that our listeners can begin to implement again, like 16, 17, 18 year old to start developing that, that self-honesty and that self-awareness? Right.
0: Stop, stop wondering what might happen. Start analyzing based on what has happened. So stop getting into business because of what you might make. Start analyzing your business based on what you have made. Right. Like, so, you know, a lot of people are like, well, that guy made a billion in it. So that means I can too. That's the first step towards going down the rabbit <laughs> hole of, of just relating to what others are doing rather than yourself. You know?
1: 100%. 100%. I know you're putting out a lot of content right now. Is there any content that you are consuming, whether that is books you're reading, a podcast you're listening to, YouTube channels you watch on a regular basis?
0: So uh, yeah, actually, I love a specific philosophical channel called Academy of Ideas on YouTube, Mm -hmm. I recommend it to a lot of people who want to think deeper about how previous uh, psychologists slash philosophers have thought of life, you know, and have kind of expressed their thoughts over the last 500 years, it's just an interesting look at how human behavior continues to mimic itself, you know, Uh after decade.
1: I think that's exactly what I need right now. Like I've been looking for some, some resources like that. So I'm definitely gonna have to check that out.
0: Yeah. Read third circle and then go see that and it'll make a lot of sense.
1: (laughs) All right. There we go. There we go. (laughs) Um, BJ, I'm always really curious as well. What my guests do that doesn't scale. So quick example of, of what I'm talking about here every single day. I will pull out my phone and I'll shoot five to 10 uh, video direct messages on Instagram to just new followers. I'll just go to my list of new followers, pick like five to 10 people randomly and just say, Hey, what's up? Uh, Whatever their name is. Hey, what's up PJ? My name's Apple. Um, Thank you so much for the follow. I really appreciate it. If there's anything that I can do for you, let me know. Have a wonderful day. Take care. So I'm super simple like that. Um, But that's not something that I, that I scale. I don't bring on one of my VAs to like do that for me and like mass produce those um, because I want to have it be that personal like one-on-one touch, give it that like apple crater feel to it. So is there anything for you in your business that that comes to mind that has like that personal PJ touch to it or something that you don't mass produce and, and, and is? So yeah, by?
0: every week I teach one random person uh, without actually expecting anything in return, even if they don't want to be thought. So I engage <laughs> in a conversation with someone random just because I overhear something and I make it a, a kind of a routine to make sure I know that. Regardless that it's on Instagram, like someone will be like, hey, can I have coffee with you? I usually charge like 500 bucks an hour. But that guy, I'm like, sure, let's meet. Let's have coffee. And Mm -hmm. it's just completely random. Uh, It's not done because I try to pitch him something or anything else. It's just, it's my way to stay in touch with what is currently happening in people's heads and what is real versus what is perceived to be, you know, a millennial profit.
1: I really like that a lot. That's not something that I've ever heard somebody doing before.
0: Yeah, I just think that it's cool because or whenever somebody asks me, like one of the ways I've found people is like they're like, Oh, what do you do for a living? I like your car. So Mm -hmm. instead of just saying, Oh, well, here's what I do, blah, 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 and you should buy my book, you know, instead (laughs) I just kind of like hear out what they have to say about where they are, Mm -hmm. why they think my car's cool. Mm -hmm."
1: Absolutely. Listening is so huge. And man, so many people just don't take the time to listen. I think they're they're really like, especially young people, they're just like they're talking so much that they don't take the time to actually like learn and and absorb the world around them. because
0: remember what i told you earlier most people don't have self-honesty self-honesty comes at a at a pace of actually being able to understand and hear what perspectives are out there and to actually form a real perspective out of it not just express yourself over people so that they just take in your perspective and i think that's what most young people do they go my way is this so you should hear it and adopt it rather than saying Let me hear out everything you guys have to say. Okay, there are definitely some good points, but here are some additional points you guys should consider. But reality is we live in a world of force, not a world of influence.
1: Mm. That is, that's, that's huge, man. And PJ, you've been dropping a ridiculous amount of value on our listeners, and I really do appreciate that. Where can they go if they want to follow up with you find your books? Like where should we send our listeners if they've really been enjoying the uh, amazing value you've been providing today? Yeah. So
0: I'll just speak to what we've been talking about. If you want to follow me in general, kind of get a glimpse into my life. Facebook uh, is just my name. Instagram is I create millionaires. That's my more famous handle. Uh, (laughs) Then on uh, in terms of websites, if you want to learn about watch trading, you can just go to watchconspiracy.com. Uh, Or if you want to learn about cars, you can go to exoticcarhacks.com. And of course, to learn business, pick up my books, you can go to secretentourage.com.
1: Awesome. And I'll be sure to link up all of those in the show notes below this episode for all of you guys to check out if you are interested in following up with Pejman. Um, Man, do you have any last closing thoughts, words of wisdom, anything you want to close out the show with here today?
0: Yeah, I think I'll just leave people with this. Based on everything we talked about, the one thing if you take nothing else away from this is that if you want to be successful in life, regardless of what you do, stick to your word. If you tell yourself, my my car will be a a Lamborghini in the next six months, two years, that's mark my words, whatever that is, then make sure you honor your words. Because if you start lying to yourself, trust me, you're already lying to everybody else. So just be honest with yourself first and you'll realize that the world just will start opening doors you've never imagined
1: existed before. That's the truth. Thank you so much for your time, Peshman. I really appreciate it. Um, And I I appreciate you choosing to spend it here on Young Smart Money.
0: Yeah, I appreciate you, buddy. Thanks
1: again. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed this latest episode of Young, Smart Money. and got a ton of value out of it. If you did, do not forget to subscribe to the podcast. It only takes about five seconds. If you're walking the dog, if you're going to the gym, pull that phone out of your pocket, press that subscribe button, and uh, drop us some love in the ratings and review sections as well. Those really do help the podcast get in front of even more people and helps us get even more amazing guests on the show. And I do read each and every one of your ratings, reviews, message that you send me. Uh, they, They really do impact me and the show and show me exactly what you want to be seeing here on Young Smart Money. So again, do not forget to drop us a rating, review, and subscribe over in iTunes. And guys, have a wonderful day. Take care. And I really do appreciate you choosing to spend your time here with us on Young Smart Money. Have a wonderful day.